following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 11. This is the second episode in the telling of the raising of Lazarus. This passage really, if, you're, if your text is one, as most Bibles do have those little divisions with the sort of section headings, uh, this one probably has a section heading entitled, I am the resurrection and the life, depending on what Bible translation you're looking at. But it is uh, the second episode, you could say, in the development of this true life tale of the raising of Lazarus. Listen to God's Word, John eleven seventeen. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. May God apply this word in power to us as we think upon it and hear it anew this morning. Some of you, I would strongly guess, have come and gone from our church maybe for years and never have made the short 100-yard or so journey up a driveway above our main parking lot out this way to see our Westminster Cemetery and Memorial Garden. You may have had no reason to go there, not having attended a funeral there. You may say, well, I don't go out of my way to go to cemeteries. They're just not pleasant places. I say to you that to me, our cemetery is not a gloomy or dreary place at all. Since we began having burials there in 2002, I now can wander that ground and view the several dozen markers that are there, and it's a bittersweet thing for me to do that because I have presided at the burials of many of those people, and I know them as dear Christian friends. They're not just 
you know, impersonal folks with names engraved on stone. Our cemetery is situated on such beautiful land that various funeral directors have commented to me over the years now to say that they think we have one of the most pleasant cemeteries physically and in terms of its beauty anywhere in Lancaster County. I agree with that. But I also know that merely having scenically fair to the eyes acreage for our final resting place does not in and of itself do anything to alleviate both the terrible sadness and in human terms what seems to be the great tragedy and fear that physical death imposes on people. It's interesting that before the Word of God fully unfolds, the grand antidote to the mystery of death by teaching us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it does in many different comments, particularly in the Old Testament, teach us about the bleak side, the sad part of losing our lives on this earth. You would think of a word like Job 14 when Job was mourning his own situation and the death of his children, and he said, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and then he withers. Boy, aren't you glad that's not all that the Bible has to say? Psalm 90 has Moses writing, the days of our lives contain 70 years or perhaps 80 if our strength hold. And yet these are but labor and sorrow and they are soon gone and we fly away. There again, not a note of hope in that. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 7 and he says, we have brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing away from it. There are no shrouds that have pockets to contain our credit cards and our 401k funds and our accumulated wealth. We take nothing out of this life. Well, that would be a hopeless picture if that's all the Bible had to say. But John chapter 11 is one of the great chapters in giving us great hope in the face of death as it tells this true life event of the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus just a very short time before Jesus himself went to the cross and rose himself from a grave. And today we hear and consider this first historic announcement from Jesus that resurrection life and power literally reside in himself. And we see as people initially react to this announcement before the the dead man came out of his grave, and particularly the two sisters, we're going to see Mary next week, Lord willing, but Martha this week, we see in how they react. Here are believers reacting to the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying, I am the power of God's life. And they say, oh yes, well, I know that. But it seems to not really make a difference. For the man or woman of real faith in Christ, we say this morning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something we celebrate once a year on Easter morning. 
It is a powerful reality that makes all the difference in how we live this present life and how we anticipate the life that is yet to come. And yet often it seems that even we who are privileged to know this and have faith in it hold on to it rather loosely and vaguely as if it isn't really something we're very sure about at all. Well, John 11, 17 to 27 does seem to divide pretty well into two main points today, and the first of them is in verses 17 through 24, the largest part of the text. And I'd ask you to think of this first point under this head, that life from God comes via resurrection at the final day. Life from God comes via resurrection at the final day. Now, Jesus and his disciples, were told, arrived at Bethany when Lazarus was in the tomb four days. I wonder if there's any significance to that number or why four days? Why not seven? Why not two? Well, there's no magic, and we don't believe in numerology as we approach the Bible, but in general, we would say this was to dispel the idea that this man wasn't really dead at all. By four days, the reality is, is there, and it's really set in. He wasn't just comatose. We weren't going to discover that he was so weak that a pulse couldn't be detected, and then in two or three days, he suddenly awakened. Such things have actually happened. It doesn't, I believe, condition this text, but there is an ancient Jewish superstition, and I make it's careful to you understand, not taught in Scripture, but something from Jewish tradition that says that the soul does not completely depart from the body until after the third day. The Jewish people had this idea that the soul kind of hovered near the body, and only on the fourth day did it completely depart to the next world. Does that have something to do with why four days? We can't really say for sure. But what is obvious is that the door should be slammed on any idea that Lazarus was somehow alive, that there was an actual thread of biological life still stirring in him, and Jesus just awakened that, that he wasn't really dead after all. He was absolutely dead. Now, you can notice, too, here that we read that many of the Jews had come to console Mary and Martha concerning their brothers. You probably have picked up by now that when John says the Jews, he isn't simply meaning Israelites in a general way, the everyday citizens of Israel or of Jerusalem. He uses that term consistently to mean the Jerusalem leadership, the temple leadership, the same people that have been so antagonistic towards Jesus all along the way in this gospel. And so these folks, probably because Lazarus was a, a prominent individual, maybe, maybe even wealthy, they have come to console. I had to pause over that knowing that those leaders included people called Sadducees, and you might have learned long ago that the Sadducees are those who do not believe in even a future resurrection. They're basically secular people. This life is all that you've got. There isn't a future life. 
They did not believe in resurrection at all. And so if these people were coming to console, what kind of consolation were they capable of bringing? Many of you have told me about how you go to funerals today of friends or neighbors or co-workers, and, and you hear the person's life and character being extolled to the skies. You almost wonder how to recognize the person they're talking about. It, it doesn't seem real, such a saint. And if that's the only consolation you've got, you don't really have a lot. It's a hollow kind of comfort that was there on the scene before Jesus arrived. Well, Martha was the sister who came out of the house. We'll talk about Mary next time, but we're told she remained seated. Probably there were guests in the home, and one of the two had to, you know, they would have to spell each other. If one of them left the house, the other one would stay and and be the hostess. Mary stayed and, and initially talked to the others. We can speculate next week, perhaps, about why she didn't jump right up and come. But Here's Martha, who we're told in Luke 10, and we know the the character of these two women from a famous incident when Martha was serving and complained to Jesus because her sister didn't help. Martha's the home ec major, the hostess, the lady who's always in the kitchen. And she, being in charge of the household, probably the older sister, we think, came out. Jesus is here. She seemed like she must have met him even on the path somewhere before he completely arrived at the house. She's true to form. And she makes this statement, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But then she adds, importantly, even now I know whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Some people treat this as if it is her quiet, but with a little bit of edge on it, criticism of Jesus. Why didn't you get here sooner? And yet, once again, we know that Lazarus had died before Jesus possibly could have gotten there. And I think Mary knew that, or Martha knew that. You can read what she says more as just a statement of simple fact. If you had been here, it would have made a difference. And Lord, I believe in you in such a way that you can make some kind of difference even now. What she expected that to be is a subject for debate. Did she really say and was she really expecting, Lord, you can make my brother come out of the tomb today? Most people don't think so because if you'll jump ahead and notice in verse 39, when he told them to open the tomb, Martha objected. Don't tamper with his tomb, Lord. By now, the body smells terrible. This would be embarrassing. So you would wonder if she really thought some kind of resurrection was going to happen that day. But she said, Jesus, you're here. You are the representative of the power of God. And I know if you do something, it will be better than nothing, whatever it is. I don't think she was criticizing Jesus as much as she was expressing that same tune of if only that many of us sing when someone has died. Don't we often think about, well, if only I had stopped to have this conversation with that person, they would not have been at that intersection when the drunken driver 
smashed their car and killed them. If only I had insisted that my wife go to the doctor sooner when she first felt that lump, not months later. It would have made a difference, and so on. And we can chase ourselves around with if-onlys, how we might have made a difference, and we can even plunge ourselves into deep guilt, imagining that we're somehow responsible for death having come to someone we care about. You know, if-onlys are really not helpful to anybody. Martha's a demonstration to me that even among those from whom the best sort of faith in the face of death might be expected, grief can twist you. Grief can kind of unseat your certainty. It can take that which is is specific and firm and clear before death comes and unsettle it to the extent that you just feel like you're not seeing things so clearly anymore. Martha's eyes were certainly dimmed by many tears that had been shed in the last days. And the wonderful power of the life of God which resided in Jesus who was standing right before her wasn't all that clear exactly, even though she was able to make this wonderful declaration of faith in verse 27. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It still wasn't clear to her how that related to or would affect the great sadness that had come into her life. She sure didn't expect her brother to rise up that day because Martha, the homemaker, you see, was more concerned about a bad smell than anything else. She hoped against hope that maybe Jesus would do something, but she was a lot like that man who in another place said, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I have faith in you, but... I'm not connecting all the dots. Help me with the dots that don't connect right now. Little could she imagine that Jesus, in just a, a short period of time, would have to do battle against something much worse than a bad smell from an open grave, that he would have to, to himself, endure blood and gore in a torture rack, hours, hours, hours of his body being beaten and torn, suffering not just physically but even spiritually, bearing the weight of human sin that in order to do away with death and open up all graves for all who would believe, not just one, he would have to do the most terrible things that made a little bit of bad odor from a tomb appear as if it were nothing. Well, from Martha, I draw the conclusion that grief can at least temporarily unhinge the best of Christians. Read C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. Some people object to that book because in the beginning, Lewis, when he had lost his wife who had only been married to him for a rather short time, is angry at God, and he's pouring things out that don't sound like nice, polite Christian prayers. But if you read the book and understand it, you see a man who struggles through grief and comes to a resolution and comes to an understanding that God is at work in his powerful way, even in the face of this numbing reversal 
of our hopes and our dreams and our loves here on earth. Well, Martha did get something right. And what she got right was really her doctrine in an ultimate sense. She did finally see what God was going to do in the end of all things and spoke about the final day of God's reckoning with souls. She had in mind what would later be written in Hebrews 9.27 where it is said it is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. And the author of Hebrews might have added, and after that glorification for those who pass through judgment under the blood of Christ. We can learn much about this even from the Old Testament. And Martha, of course, had an Old Testament faith. She would have heard sometime in her life the words of Job 19.25 when that sufferer, Job, who had such hard times as a believer, even seeing that God was active at all in the terrible things happening to him, was able to say in that shining moment, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And in my flesh, I will see God. Job knew there was an ultimate resurrection. And as God's man, he would see it. He would be part of it. It's written about in an entirely different way in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul tells about the future day, yet future for us, when Christ will return gloriously to the earth. And he said there that he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and will bring with him the dead in Christ. And then we all, they and we believers who remain, will receive resurrection bodies and will be with the Lord forever. That's what Martha had right. She believed in that. And she said, yes, Lord, I, I know that there will be life from God at a final day resurrection. History's great day means all that for us. We put that day out of our minds and we just don't think about it very often, but for all who hope in Christ, that is the ultimate hope. That God will perfect those who are His and give them unto Himself and as His family in eternity. But the question that our text aches to ask here is whether there isn't perhaps something more that might happen even before that. So Martha, you get points for doctrine, but you haven't yet got a hope that changes your today. And for a second point, I believe Jesus speaks to that in verses 25 and 26. Secondly, he gives that which is actually revolutionary here. Martha, you score well on the exam. You understand what God will ultimately do. He will raise his own at the final day. But Martha, there's something absolutely great that you haven't understood yet. And our second point is that real life from God is a believer's possession today. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, although he dies, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, we've heard these I am claims already in John here. This is the fifth one, if you're keeping track. 
I am the living water, or I am the bread of life was the first. Second was I am living water. Third was I am the door of the flock. I am the good shepherd. And now I am the resurrection and the life. The power that brings alive is in me. It is mine to originate. It is mine to bestow. I am the prime cause of life. Death came to you through Adam. Life comes to you through me. A great theologian who lived a hundred years ago, Benjamin Warfield, wrote, whatever death is and all that death is, that is what we are being saved from in the salvation of Christ. And whatever life is and all that life is, is what we are saved to in the salvation of Christ. We're saved from death unto life. Jesus isn't simply a teacher about resurrection. He's the author of resurrection. As pre-existing God, we believe the Scripture that He came into a created human body and His purpose in coming thus was not simply to teach or to demonstrate what a great human being looked like, a perfect human being. His ultimate purpose was to die and to rise again and thus be the author of resurrection life, that people might live not just in a far-off resurrection final day at the glorious appearing of Christ, that's all true, but that we could live right now in a whole different manner. Notice what he says here, 1125, so that although someone dies, yet shall they live. That's talking about those who have already physically died. That's talking about our friends up the hill. You want to follow up to this sermon, especially if you've been a longtime member of this congregation? Walk on up there on a beautiful September day and just walk around and see some of the names that you'll know, the people who worshiped among us, delightful friends and fellow Christians whom we have lost, whom we miss. But Jesus is talking about them. Although they die, yet shall they live. Their remains are in a grave, but their living souls are perfected in the righteousness of Christ, and they are alive before God in a way that you and I are not right now. The eternal part of them is not in that cemetery. But you should also notice that this promise doesn't just talk about those who have already died because it goes on to say in verse 26, and whoever lives now, drawing breath in and out, whoever's doing that while believing in me shall never die. Here's the promise to believers who are living right now. I think I'm talking to all living people. You know, some of you look more alive than others, I'll have to admit, but especially at an 8 o'clock service. But I think you're all breathing. I think you all have a pulse. This is for you. You can live in this life today and have a life in you unlike anything the people in this world know. I've been rather disgusted by the continual advertising. I would honestly be able to tell you I've never once watched the shows, but I see the ads 
for this stupid series of TV shows called The Living Dead. The ads are disgusting. People fighting zombies with disfigured faces and all kinds of things. The Living Dead. Well, let me tell you, there are people around you who are living dead. Spiritually, they may seem like some of the most vibrant people you know, talented, successful. Spiritually, they are living dead because they do not know the living God. You should not be one of those if you know Christ. I came across a little story that has a ring of truth to it. It happened in France many centuries ago, back in the Middle Ages, back in rather primitive times. There was plague in the land in France, and this happened in a rural district where people weren't very sophisticated or educated. And there was a poor farm couple working their little acreage who one day saw the body of a well-dressed man on the road that went past their home. They, they knew all about the plague, and they knew what the risks might be, but they picked the man up and carried him into their home and tried to take care of him, cleaned him and fed him, nursed him for a number of days, but unhappily the sickness was very far gone, and they could see this man was dying, and he knew it too. And so it's said that the man took two pieces of paper out of his pocket, and the couple saw that these were very beautiful pieces of paper with purple and green ink on them, and he gave these papers to them and said, thank you so much for your mercy and your nursing care. I believe I'm going to die. I want you to have these. Well, the fact was these people were illiterate. And the only money they had ever seen were copper coins or maybe here and there a silver coin or two. But what they had been given were two 1,000 franc notes. That was a lot of money in those days. But they didn't even know it was money. They said, oh, these are beautiful papers, beautiful designs on them, and this man evidently valued these things. They're nice little works of art. Let's just tack them on our wall to, to look at them and remember this friend that we knew for a short time. So they did. And finally, a, a friend came to their home and saw these two 1,000-franc notes tacked on their wall. And he said, my friends, where did you get all that money? Do you understand that you have tacked on your wall enough money to buy two farms and completely equip those farms with, with the best stock and animals and everything that you could possibly buy to enjoy? You see, in total ignorance of what they possessed, these people had not used or enjoyed the power of the gift. And I believe there are many Christians who don't have a sense that they really have from God in Christ the power of a new life. Resurrection something we sing about on Easter. It's selecting our first hymn this morning. I could have selected, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Why do we sing that hymn only once a year? Strange, isn't it? Do we think the life of Christ is something that's relevant only once a year? Why do we not live and understand and breathe and act in a daily, weekly fashion 
echoing the words of Philippians 3 when Paul says, my grand goal every day that I live is that I may know Him, Christ, and what? The power of His resurrection. We possess the power of a new life. The power of Christ's resurrection. Because of this new life that we have, can you begin to comprehend how, therefore, we should be hoping in a whole different way about the future? Not just that out there, somewhere beyond the clouds, someday we'll be raised with Christ. That will be true. But right now, we are raised with Christ. We already are. Because Ephesians 2 says, We who were dead in trespasses and sins... God has made alive together with Christ. And what has he done? He has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Wow. Is that true or not? And if that is true, ladies and gentlemen, it means my life today is absolutely different than the life of those living dead that I rub shoulders with in this world who do not have Christ. I can hope differently. I can pray differently. I can worship differently. I can lead my family differently. I can grieve loss and sorrow and difficulty in a whole different way than anyone else who does not possess the life of Christ. And so as we conclude today, I have to say, look at the question that Jesus asked Martha. It's a simple question. Do you believe this? Martha, John, George, Catherine, do you believe that you have the life of Jesus Christ pulsating in you today? Or can you somehow say that Apostles' Creed Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Ho-hum. We should be shouting by the time we get to that phrase in the creed, ladies and gentlemen. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And guess what? It's going on right now in me. It's high time we woke up. You need to wake before you die and trust in what Jesus Christ has done all the way down into the roots of your being. The hope of resurrection and the change that it makes should be something that has soaked into you like water into a sponge so that you go around week in, week out and do your shopping and your homemaking and your job and and your retirement activities and whatever it is that occupies you. You do it not trapped inside a smelly grave. You belong to Christ by faith. And the words of Romans 8, 1 are true of you if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He who raised Christ will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Elsewhere, Jesus said, He who has the Son has life. Not will have it someday, has it. And He who has not the Son does not have life. I am just the humble messenger of the author of life, 
ladies and gentlemen, as I give his question to you, do you really believe this? Our Father, you've done a revolutionary thing in Jesus Christ. Even before he went to the cross, he told us what it would be about, what was going on. We couldn't understand it. Martha couldn't understand it. She can be forgiven for that. We in her place would have been just as confused and just as sorrowful. But now we're not in her place. We're on the other side of that whole transaction. So, Father, do not allow us to have her dimness of view, her vagueness of belief. Teach us day by day and hour by hour that we have absolutely different lives. The life of heaven begun now. How we praise you for Jesus our Lord in whom all this became possible and true. Amen.